The expectation that you'll never eat a piece of birthday cake is probably for most people not real. And I think actually when you look at microbiome and stress studies, the shame and stress of it probably is more hurtful to your microbiome than just fucking eating the birthday cake. <laughs> so. Hello and welcome to Your Great with me, your host, Unique Hammond. I'm sharing stories about healing and tools for better health. I created this space for those seeking inspiration along their healing path. One of the things I learned on my journey is that healing my body took healing my relationship with my body, with food, with my emotional and spiritual body as well. My experience with my microbiome wasn't really a thing until Crohn's hit. And from there, you know, it was a deep dive into gut health and inflammation and fermented foods and really trying to find a way to build back my gut biome, which was just destroyed. And it was destroyed by my own ignorance and naivete from the younger years, really, when I was drinking and staying out and eating crappy food and taking painkillers whenever my period was painful and it was always painful so I was always popping painkillers and I just didn't understand that all of these choices had an impact on my microbiome and without a healthy microbiome nothing is healthy in the human body so I am really excited to share my conversation with Ara Katz the co-CEO of Seed Probiotic a microbial science company pioneering applications of microbes for human and planetary health. Ara is a serial entrepreneur, and it was her breastfeeding experience that led her to the microbiome and inspired her personal mission to explore the importance and impact of microbes. So this is an awesome conversation. I hope you guys learn as much as I did about the microbiome she is just a wealth of information, I have to say. There were so many moments that my jaw was just hanging open. I was like, what the? Anyway, all right, enjoy, you guys. Hello, Ara. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the gut biome and the role of probiotics and human health, how they are facilitating better human health is kind of how I see it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So when did you fall in love with the microbiome and wanting to be a part of the health of it, really? Oh, it's a great, it's a great question. It's funny that you asked, like, when did you fall in love with it? Because I don't even know if love is the right word, because it was a, certainly a hard transition into my love of science, because it really came from my mom being sick when I was in high school. But I think I've always had like a really insatiable curiosity of all things, a bit of a optimistic, cynic <laughs> worldview, which is grounded in, I'd never like the first answer I get. Uh, and I think the really just human, the curiosity about how we, particularly after my mom uh, was so sick when I was in high school and then ultimately passed away so young. I've just had a lifelong fascination between the way we care for our bodies, the way we make decisions and like rationalize our behaviors and the way we like think about, you know, how to, how to care for ourselves, how to make choices. 
the information we pass along to other people, often with no evidence. And I've always just been curious about all those things. And so I think, and, and then I think in, in addition to that, I've worked in tech and um, at the forefront of a lot of fields that kind of touch technology. And I have always felt that, and you see this, but I think the rise of how many people have looked to alternative, integrative, other areas outside of our healthcare system and Western medicine. There's lots of things I think are really meaningful to take from them, but I don't think it's the it's the binary way I think that gets presented. It's like East versus West or something, you know, that 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 idea of old versus new. That I don't prescribe to. But when you look at this mass movement where people are not getting answers, you have to unpack that, right? And I think I did and have always felt when my mom was really sick, this is really, I think, where it came from. I have always felt that there were so, there's so, so many unknowns despite how far we've come. And I think that the microbiome, when, you know, I, I found it both a little bit through just my science nerdy work that I kind of just to try and stay on top of a lot of areas and, and certainly had started hearing about it and thinking about it, particularly from the gut microbiome perspective and, you know, a lot of different disciplines, some really big papers had come out in like early 2000s and then just kind of continued to kind of build. But really, I think it was this when I was pregnant, you know, you get so many, so much bad information and so much misinformed, highly unsolicited information. <laughs> and I think it just like revived my like all the things that like I love to unpack and find. And then, of course, when I was pregnant, you know, when I started digging in the way that I kind of typically do like the microbiome really started to become um, a very relevant theme in a lot of the more scientific and, med- and scientific literature and areas I was looking at. And I met my co-founder during that time. And I think we both, for very different reasons, found our way to the microbiome. And I, and I really, truly felt, and I think in tech, there's this tenant of, like, of, of what they call zero to one, which are these technologies, ideas, discoveries, revelations that come along in different industries, different areas of science, medicine, technology, and there are other things that take something from truly this place of zero to like a one, like a, like a true evolutionary step. And I think that to me, the more I started to understand the microbiome and the velocity research was increasing, huge data sets were being assembled, areas that were never previously thought like would ever touch something like microbiome, like a lot of people would hear about gut health and just think digestion. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is actually like, it's like putting on, like, it's like in the matrix. <laughs> it's like seeing the world in a whole new way. And I just thought to myself, like both intellectually, I felt that, well, I'll never get bored here. As an entrepreneur, of course, categories and areas like probiotics and the research in microbiome and all of its applications were becoming massive, fast-growing industries. And I come out of like consumer and, and tech. And I felt that there was also like extraordinary opportunity to bring real science to a field that was growing but had very little science. And then obviously I think for my own health reasons and having a child during that time and having some trouble breastfeeding, it was like, I realized how much understanding the microbiome as an as entire new dimension of your health and your body was like this, it was like, a, it was like a sense of agency and a sense of knowledge that I felt beyond just the product innovation and the science and research I wanted to move forward with our team of scientists and with my co-founder, it was, it was this new lens that you could actually offer people to understand their health. And going back to what I said at the very beginning, just to make my story circular, 
to really help people ground into new language and new ways to make choices and think about their bodies. And I think a lot of people are suffering right now from all kinds of non, well, that's a whole other conversation I was going to get into the fact that we now die from non-communicable diseases faster than any other time in history, but many of those are linked to the microbiome. And I just felt that there was an opportunity, as I said, Neil and Hobie, to make and research and science, but actually just the equipping of education and the lens was just incredibly impactful. So I felt that I could spend a lot of time here and make a big impact. And you do. I've been following your account for a long time on Instagram, and I constantly feel educated by what you're putting out there in, in such a beautiful way. It's the first time I've interacted with a company that I've actually wanted to know more. I'm not a huge consumer of supplements. Personally, I try to really put a focus on food. So for me, to really fall in love with your company, your dedication to excellence, really, and education in excellence as well. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm big. To say I'm a big fan is an understatement. Uh, well, but. Thank, yeah, well, thank you. And, and I think, look, you're, we're learning all the time that the combination of these life choices, and you can try a million diets, and you can do a lot of different things, but they're starting to see that education, agency, and the Learning and understanding of, of the why actually has its own impact itself. There's some early IBS studies that just patients going through two to three week courses of learning about IBS symptomology and, and the pathology of IBS and what we know and where the research is and just going through education, literally no other intervention. People report in like better symptomology. Beautiful. So it's, you know, and, that, and that's early and those are small studies, but it really just shows you that I think there's like a lot that comes when you give people new language and new, new ways of thinking about their bodies. And empowerment. You said yeah, something about breastfeeding and the microbiome. Was there something in breastfeeding that you had touched? I mean, was there, tell, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it, this is where like knowing a lot of science and, and this stuff also is a, is a, there's a blessing and a curse, right? You can be really empowered, but then when you are unable to fulfill the things that you know are the best, it's like a, it's, you know, it's a, it's kind of a catchment too. But the fascinating thing about breast milk, I mean, the, the, the way that we have evolved as humans and the way that the microbiome is seeded from mother to, to child, which is where our name comes from, incidentally. And the way that the, the nipple, the microbes that evolved on our, to live on our nipple microbiome are optimized for the, the digest, digesting of lactose. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's extraordinary between vaginal microbes, fecal microbes, skin microbes, what gets transferred at birth, what happens now that we, now we know the womb is not necessarily sterile and that the microbiome has what the mother does prenatally has like huge implications in shaping the beginning of the child's microbiome. And then, of course, the seeding process that happened, a uh, big, big part of it happening at birth. And then breast milk, which is fascinating, you know, a third of the carbohydrates in breast milk, which are called HMOs, which are these human milk oligosaccharides, they're, you know, these sugars, carbohydrates that are really important for the baby, are not even digestible by the human part of the baby. They are only food for the microbes that are starting to inhabit the child's gut and begin to basically be the fertilizer for that garden <laughs> that is starting, which of course informs many things in your child's like, like lifelong health and journey. And so when you start to understand like the nutritional, the nutritional profile of breast milk, 
and the role of some of those compounds in the development of the microbiome, as well as the microbial and the HMO with the, the carbohydrate profile of breast milk, which, by the way, changes over the course of breastfeeding according to what a child needs, which is like more, more mind-blowing. And then you are someone like me who's starting a company in this, and then you can't breastfeed anymore. <laughs> That's, you're just like, oh, you're like, and, and there, isn't, there, there was not a great solution for that because other than finding what you think at the time is the best formula, plus some supplementation of probiotics and some HMO. But like even five years ago is not where the industry is today, where they're, they're able to replicate the HMO profile of, of or not replicate, but there are more HMOs available that have been synthesized to more closely resemble breast milk than when I had the issue previously. And it is a big part of actually our pipeline as well. And so when we started, we were actually really focused on the reinvention of a formula that would most closely replicate breast milk, which we are still working on, but are, gonna, are coming at it in a bit of a different, from a different way now. I mean, that's just mind blowing. You just kind of blew my mind over here because I did, I breast, I was able to breastfeed and I feel yes. very lucky that I was able to do that for 17 months of their lives. But I mean, you just really blew my mind because I didn't know that about my breast milk. I was like, yeah, it's just what they're eating. You know, so I, it must be what they need. No, it is. It's really I'm very impactful. And, and, and by the way, it's not, it's not to say like, a, and just for your community or audience, because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of shame and, and emotion tied up in vaginal birth versus C-section, breastfeeding versus formula, just to say that it is not the only thing. And there are so many other things that you can do in Ireland that are very impactful, but it is certainly one of the, let's say, evolutionary ways um, that we learn to cultivate like a healthy microbiome in early, early in life. And with lots of now longitudinal data to suggest and support um, why that shaping of the early child's microbiome has so much implication in whether or not a child develops allergies, uh, food allergies, seasonal allergies, asthma, other autoimmune condition, you know, so there's a lot of correlative and, and now more mechanistic understanding of, of some of that. And so, yeah, it is, it is important, but it's not the only, <laughs> only thing that's important. Well, it sounds like you have incredible knowledge. I'll have to pick your brain on that because I, I, work, <laughs> I work, well, predominantly my clientele are women and I work with fertility and I work with postpartum nutrition and with some of my clients, it's been amazing. They they don't really feel like they're getting enough milk and will increase their water and electrolytes. And sometimes that can help, which is kind of surprising to me, just increasing that liquid in their body. Because I think a lot of, and including myself, I didn't know I needed so much more liquid going into my body to help create um, additional breast milk. And I remember up being my water because I was so worried about being able to feed them. And drinking all of these teas, you know, which I didn't even know if they helped, but I'm like, drink all the tea. And then somebody was like, unique, increase your water. And I was just like guzzling water. And then it was, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like I said, everything you just said, my listeners are going to be so into understanding because there is a lot of shame around, you know, wanting, you don't know what your birth story is going to be until you get there. Yeah, and interestingly enough, although this doesn't help as much with the breast milk versus formula story, but there's a few studies to suggest, and I think a lot of there's a lot of scientific agreement about this, that actually they, you look at the microbiome composition of a gradually born infant versus a um, cesarean or, you know, C-section baby, 
And their microbiomes look wildly different at the beginning because the C-section baby looks more like the mother's skin microbe. A vaginal microbe, vaginally born child has more of a composition that reflects the fecal skin and vaginal microbiome, um, which by the way, like a fun kind of evolutionary like hypothesis. It's kind of fun just for any women that pooped while they were birthing and have some sort of shame about that. Actually, there's some rationale in evolutionary biology or hypothesis that are the two holes <laughs> evolves very closely together for a reason, because for a lot of other species that actually eat poop and or and are more closely connected in their health to poop that that or that it was part it was kind of meant to be a part of some early seeding one and be very close to the birth canal, which is kind of interesting. But, but so you see that in the in those two baby populations, very different compositions early on. But after like six months to a year of breast breastfeeding their microbiomes actually start to converge and look very similar. So I think that's that's kind of interesting just to show you that like even just one very big difference in mode of birth, but then certain things like breastfeeding have started to demonstrate like convergence of those microbiomes. And then of course, other factors, like if they don't have, if they didn't have antibiotic in the absence of antibiotics, for example, and other things, but and just, just kind of interesting that to note that it's not a, the microbiome, particularly at, at that malleable stage, it's not like fixed in time. <laughs> it really is developing quickly and very susceptible to the inputs that are coming in or around it. And it sounds like also that for you, even though breastfeeding wasn't part of the story, that you knew enough that you were able to give your child what they needed to kind of like safeguard their health, it sounds like. To, to the extent that what was available at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The idea of creating, because I know that's the other big conversation that comes up of, okay, if I can't breastfeed, what do I give my child that's going to be adequate for their development and just gut health so that they don't have all of these allergies? And I think I heard you say you might be working on something and that sounds amazing. And it also sounds like yeah, yeah. like a different stage of child's life, a different milk would kind of be needed, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it, I think there's a lot of people who've done some really good work. As I said, now there's so many formulas that I think have better representation of the HMOs. There's simplicity inside HMOs, obviously not for humans, and, and nutritional profiles that I think are coming out of some of the newer newer research that of other compounds and things that I think are in are better than what existed when I had to when I had that issue. I think there's a little bit less, at least, which I'm fingers crossed for, impulse to just use in antibiotics at the first sign of anything, which I think is at least a way to avoid nuclear bombing. Although, as I said, antibiotics will save your life in the right moment. So I don't, I'm not anti-antibiotics, just that. I think there's a little bit less of a like, oh, ear infection, give it right that day versus just like, wait a second, wait a beat. So I think that more people are doing that. I think there's more, people are being more cognizant. And I think we're, we're working on some really interesting research in this field, but like actually surfactants, like what we clean with in our home and what we clean our children with and how often we bathe them whether they need to be bathed a lot, what they're bathed with that like impacts the skin barrier and the skin microbiome, which of course, when you're a developing child is a huge part of like the training of your immune system. You know, I think all of those things, lifestyle choices, et cetera, whether you have a dog in the house, which, you know, it's a great way to train a child's microbiome to have a pet because they're bringing microbes around that you can get really uh, exposed to you, whether or not you live in a very urban environment versus you're taking your child into nature a lot. So there's like, I think there are things that I can't say that they would really reverse everything from not having a vaginal birth, 
but would say that you're setting, you're starting to set the child up for the most op- optimal like development. And I think a lot more research and products and other things are going to begin to come out that I think, interestingly enough, will probably even start in the mother and then move into the child after they're born, which I think actually will start to embrace and understand that transfer moment as well as the early stages of life and what can be really meaningful to cultivating a healthy microbiome. I did get a lot of questions and we can get to that later where people were like, should you be taking a probiotic during pregnancy? Is that helpful to the overall health yeah. of you and the baby? My answer is, this is which probiotic? Yeah. <laughs> you, you'd have to really, it, it's, it's like saying, should I eat food um, while I'm pregnant? That's that's how a scientific perspective, that's how non-specific the question is, if that makes sense. And and why I think, you know, we do what we do because we're trying to bring some specificity and precision to the field. But no, I don't think you should just pick up anything from anywhere. Not because I think it would be unsafe. Obviously, you have to ask someone, one would need to ask their practitioner or doctor, but mostly just because I think very few products are clear about why you're taking them and what you're taking them for. And so I think you would just wanted to do it we would want to do it very thoughtfully, mindfully, and note strains your. I think there's other supplementation during pregnancy that's incredibly important too. I mean, I would love to hear, since you have all of this incredible knowledge and I know exactly why you're here, let's break down the gut biome and why these microbes are so important. I always like to start with definitions, but we kind of just jumped into it. So the microbiome is, there's a lot of misconceptions because a lot of people just think microbiome and like gut health kind of interchangeably. But, you know, there's, there's, trillions if by cell count in your human body about 50 50 a lot of people sensationalized a statistic a while ago that was a little bit debunked that still actually is used by many scientists which is this like 10 to 1 idea but actually it's more about like 50 50 with your human cells by one of the last like weissman study counts which is still extraordinary if you think about the fact that like you grew up thinking you were human (laughs) we find out that 50 percent of the cells in your body are not human which is crazy. And so, you know, you think about that and about 38, tr- 38 trillion of those are bacteria um, that live in on and all around you. And so the majority, the, the reason the gut microbiome became kind of interchangeable with microbiome or gut health, because uh, the largest and most diverse population of, of microbes is in, is in your gut, is in your GI tract. The second, second largest, which is about 700 plus species is in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course you have the ecology or microbiome of like your skin, which vi- varies a lot. Like this, like your, your face microbiome is different than your back skin microbiome, which is different than your leg skin microbiome, which is very different than like the p- palms of your hands, which are very actually like non, non-diverse and not microbial at that much at all. And so it, the and then your nasal microbiome there's an optical microbiome there's an ear microbiome there's a belly button microbiome <laughs> there's a vaginal microbiome which is a very big deal and very important <laughs> which we can get to if you want to but all of those actually all microbes in and on your body comprise the microbiome but when we generally talk about it today we really need the gut because it's where the majority of research has been done it's what we know the most about today but all of those ecologies, the little microbiomes are entirely different from each other. So it's literally like going from like a rainforest, a tundra to a desert to all like, if you think about the ecologies of earth and in nature, your microbiomes are as distinct from each other on your own body as they are. Like if you were thinking about different environments, like in the, in, in the, in, in the outside environment and they evolved that way. 
They each play totally different roles. What your microbes do under your armpits <laughs> is totally different than the microbes. They work really hard to like digest certain foods and metabolize like short chain fatty acids in your gut. So like they really all play such specific roles. Not just what I was saying about probiotics, which is like microbes have various they have specific functions and and they do very different things in different parts of your body. And also even within the same part of your body, they can have multiple functions at different times. So which is really fascinating. And so in terms of why they're so important, I mean, in the gut especially, which I'll just focus on because it's probably what most people like really want to understand. I mean, that. honestly, I think all of it's amazing. Like what you just said blew my mind because I'm like, why don't they migrate to each other? They're like so different. You know? Well, some of them do. I mean, you're, you know, if you're swallowing, if you think you swallow a quart of saliva every day, you know, they are. They're, they're, there's the, at least particularly from like the mouth as an example, but yes, they don't migrate. Well, <laughs> it's a, it's an, it's, there's nuance to it, but they, there's communication. Like if you think about the gut brain access, mm -hmm. there's communication between some of them. There's communication between them, by the way, not just, they don't just talk to each other. They talk to your, <laughs> the human host too. There's signaling that happens with human cells and of course other microbes as well. And so. It's a really fascinating, you know, int intranet that I think if you think about when you asked me why I got into this, like it was like all of modern medicine, biology, everything we had done up until recently was like looking, it was like, it was like looking at half of you. Hmm. If you think about that, which is really what is so extraordinary about it, because I think every day, I'm sure while we've been on this recording, 30 new papers have been published about some new area where a microbe has been understood to have some sort of like mechanistic or some correlative role in either some disease or some part of the body, which is incredible if you think about it. And the reason that they're so important in, in, in gut health is because, you know, they, we couldn't digest food without them. They play such a huge role in the way that we extract and metabolize food and, and different compounds and to make different either to grow and proliferate to like obviously maintain like a healthy flora from like an immune and gut, gut immune function perspective, all the way to the fact that they like produce the neurotransmitters that just make you literally make you poop. <laughs> literally like are what move poop along, <laughs> move poop along. And, and then of course the gut has all these axes. So the gut liver axes, you know, they're working on everything from like things that impact cholesterol and the way that you know, bile acid, it, I mean, it, that there's, there's a tremendous amount of like crosstalk and communication between the gut and the liver. There's the gut lung axis and the way that microbes play a role in like respiratory health. There's obviously the gut skin axis. So understanding how when things go wrong, I'm sure this is with a lot of your clients, right? Like looking at like the internal triggers for, you know, everything from eczema to psoriasis to atopic dermatitis, all of which can start and be triggered by things that happen in the gut. And so, you know, this, and then of course the gut brain axis, which is one of the newest areas of research. One of our scientists, Dr. Sarkis Masmania Caltech is probably the premier scientist in the field, you know, or, and certainly one of, has done extraordinary work to understand like the specific metabolite that like that microbes make and the specific microbes themselves that have been isolated that influence like our social behavior. How we respond to stress, for example, how we function, how ang what what creates anxiety, things like that. Wow! And you can see that through my, my, there's mice studies too, where uh, you'll see a transplant. I know you asked you were wanted to ask about the weight 
uh, and metabolic health part of like FMTs and transplants in mice. But I mean, they can induce like an anxiety response too, just through FMTs, which is extraordinary. No way. I mean, I, I had Crohn's disease and I put it into remission naturally. And I spent yeah. a lot of time cultivating a healthy gut and eating I'm- for gut health because the first 30 years of my life was just a mouth party. I didn't really contemplate yeah. food as information for my body. As obviously I wasn't even contemplating my gut biome at that point. I mean, you know, I look back and I'm like, wow, it's amazing. I'm here in one piece, but no, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I, we have a lot of people, actually we have two investors who had crowns that through like some of our work had experienced such uh, meaningful outcomes that they invested in the seed. Uh, which is really fascinating, but we yeah, have Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, IBS, IBD. I mean, these are all, we have a trial right now at Harvard on IBS, really trying to understand the role of the micro, the, the, the microbiome and, and the gut. There has to be one because it was the one thing that my doctors told me to avoid, which is a high fiber diet, which was actually what ended up contributing to my remission. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't, I haven't checked out my microbes anytime soon, but I'm so healthy that I haven't had a, a reason to, but it would be fascinating to do a stool test now or something to look at what yeah. a healthy, because I've been in remission naturally for the last, it took me a year and a half to go into remission with diet and lifestyle yeah. changes. And I've been in remission since, you know, so, but I, I cultivate it. Like I actively make sure I'm eating. Yeah. And cultivating a healthy gut biome. Yeah, it's where the field is heading is less like what microbes are there, mm-hmm. but actually more like the functional outputs of them. Mm-hmm. So not to confuse everybody, but there's a new word, the metabolomes, <laughs> which is the collection of all the metabolites that the microbes make. And what we're finding is that um, different microbes could make the same metabolites. So actually what's in there uh, and in the obsession that I think 1.0 of microbiome had with like composition has been proven to kind of not be as anywhere near as telling as actually measuring function and the metabolites. And I think that's where, that's certainly where the, the entire field, I, I believe, is headed, which is really exciting. So you'll start to see like people and a lot of like, for example, Dr. Met, like up brain stuff I was just talking about, like you, you, we know like the mic, like certain microbes that can be used as probiotics and potentially as like, as therapeutics. But then you can also look at like isolating the metabolite that they make that also has the same application and then putting that through a drug trial, for example, for something like depression or anxiety. And that's what Sarkis actually has a, a company doing right now. So we're going to start to hear a lot more about like the function, like what they're doing. And it's hard because a lot of people, of course, love data. They want to know what's in there, but we've learned that it's a really poor indicator for knowing much other than maybe looking at diversity and, 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 rich, and what they call alpha richness. I actually think knowing what the intention of the probiotic, what it is, what it's there to do, is going to be such an amazing tool because so many people are just grabbing stuff off the shelf because they took antibiotics. Okay, so I'm just going to take this and not really knowing, is it is it helping populate my gut? Is it going to stop my gut from populating naturally? Is it going to help me not get a UTI? I mean, I know a lot of women who go on antibiotics for something else and then end up with a really bad UTI, right? And then they have to take another thing to get rid of that thing. And it becomes this like snowball effect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and UTI, I mean, unfortunately, like UTI, the and my antimicrobial resistance for most antibiotics that are given for UTIs that are almost at about 
So they're no longer considered a frontline treatment by the FDA because uh, antibiotics are, and obviously antibiotic resistance is a huge problem because the more people take antibiotics, the more we train them to not work. And so one of our, our first drug trial under our women's health work is for taking a microbe as a therapeutic for recurrent urinary tract infections. That is beautiful. I have a couple of clients and it'll, I'll be interested by your response to this, but by their intimate partner can end up having a UTI every time they have sex because their yeah. microbes are like at war with each other or something. Like what's going on? It, so, so there's two time, There's two things that are the greatest perturbations of the vaginal microbiome. And actually just a really interesting note about the vaginal microbiome. So a couple of the markers that at least scientifically people agree on are, are have generally been considered markers of health in a microbial, in, in the gut microbiome is diversity. So like, I think I, it was, I was trying to say like, you know, I mean, look, NIH and the Human Microbiome Project spent $173 million to determine what a healthy microbiome is. And there's the answer is there's no one healthy microbiome and everyone's is different. However, there were markers that correlated with health and one of them was diversity. Interestingly enough, you want no diversity in the vagina. <laughs> you want to dominate, there's four species, you want to dominate pretty much the, the top one. And they are, it is a very highly guarded <laughs> environment that should not have diversity. And when there's diversity, that actually is where the dysbiosis of that microbiome comes from. Whereas like, if you imagine um, in the gut, one of the examples I always give is like, if you think about a beautiful lush rainforest, you know, you throw a handful of sand into a lush rainforest, it's not gonna have a big impact. But if you throw a handful of something, of seven things into a community that only has four, it's not, it, it doesn't, it, that, that, throw, that, that can easily throw it off and make it more susceptible to infection. And so the vaginal microbiome is really interesting because there's the two things that are the greatest perturbations of the vaginal microbiome are sex. And by the way, inclusive of oral sex and, and actually really interesting data of where like E. coli, like fascinating information and, and research around like the or, oral sex and the vaginal microbiome and the transmission of pathogens and leading to like UTIs and, and uh, BB, et cetera. And then menstruation, menstruation, which is really interesting. So you, you see these like dips when you look, you can look at like a month, when you look at like the genomic sequencing of like the microbiome after sex or after, you can see that it's like the time that actually has the most disruption and it is the highest susceptibility to infection, which is wow. fascinating. <laughs> Wait, so there's only four strains in the... There's dominant species, a dominant species. Yes. Okay. And so, and so, but, but there, I mean, there are, there are others and there can be others and it's a very nuanced, it's a wilder podcast on the vagina okay. kind of microbiome because <laughs> there are also different community state types of microbiome. So different women have different, either CS1, 2, 3, 4. So it's, it's a bit more of a, a nuanced discussion, but it is definitely one of the markers of the vaginal microbiome of its health is actually non-diversity, which is important to kind of know and, and is one of the kind of key dominant species. And when you see a lack of and or these disruptions, again, from menstruation, sex, et cetera, these moments where the vagina is the most susceptible to either infection, STIs, uh, UTI, et cetera, is after, is, is in those moments. So I'm, I'm really... <laughs> Not surprised at all. And unfortunately, there's, we are working on a consumer product that is non-microbial. So not a probiotic, but a product that modulates the vaginal microbiome um, that we're very excited about outside of our therapeutic work. And I think there's going to be a lot more coming 
from that in the coming years. But it is a, I mean, it is a huge, huge problem to which there really hasn't been any outside of antibiotics when they do work, which have other other demonstrated negative effects, like for your gut. You know, there there's obviously demanos and you know some other some other interventions that you know whether they whether they have evidence or not is 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 still questionable but often can be very impactful for certain women um yeah. you know you women basically using boric acid at this point mm-hmm. uh and all kinds of things that are could also be incredibly damaging <laughs> but happen to reduce symptomology and other things and so it's very challenging bacterial vaginosis is a huge problem for which there's also again no frontline treatment it's a major, it is a major problem. I mean, I, I'm short of telling my clients, maybe don't, I know you like this person, but if you have, you know, a urinary tract infection every time you have sex, maybe, maybe don't like, like your body's being borrowed every time. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or change, change the, the mode of protection. Yeah. Um, potentially. Oh, like actually using the protection if they weren't might help. Yeah. I mean, I, I the genital microbiome is a transfer of microbes. <laughs> Whether you like, when you kiss, you know, like a friend yeah. kiss me think for like 20 seconds, I think it's like 80 million microbes just on its own. So if you can imagine two genitals meeting in the way that they are, like there's a transfer of microbes. A mouth, like a, a tongue, for example, is a huge transfer. 700 species of bi- bacteria right right in here. So if all of it is like this microbial transfer that that's happening. And so I think if you... As a hypothesis, if I wanted to still have sex with that person, I would probably just reduce the surface area, which their genital microbes are touching mine as, a, as an idea, which I know is not always the best idea, but might be better than abstinence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just your poor body is getting bombed, you know, every like. Every time. Yeah. And which, which by the way, has implications for fertility and, and, and all kinds of things. And then spontaneous preterm birth is directly related uh, very closely to uh, the vaginal microbiome is another area that we're working on, which is a huge, huge problem. Burden, not just a burden on the American healthcare system, but extraordinarily unfair to women of uh, color and, and various, you know, lower socioeconomic status in this country. And the amount of preterm birth that's happening is, is crazy. Actually, interestingly enough, went way down during COVID, which is fascinating. That's fascinating. Very. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of areas where like, you know, just to go back to your initial question, why microbes are so important. I mean, they play such a key role and, you know, are are really like our, are truly our our closest friends (laughs) from it and from a health perspective that really like in in a lot of ways, maybe a therapist would call it codependence, but in science, (laughs) call it symbiosis. (laughs) I like the symbiosis of it. It is it is profound to me to to realize the you know the marriage of the my I, I a long time ago when I was starting to study nutrition I had read papers that they had done these puppies where half of them were raised in a lab in a sterile environment and the other half were out in the dirt and the ones in the lab did not thrive because they were away from microbes and the ones that were in the wild and the dirt were thriving puppies you know. And it's just, it was, that was the moment, it was just so simple, but that was the moment where I was like, we need to be dirty in a good way, you know, like out in the wild and not sterilized. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of other, we're we're working with a really interesting group in Europe on looking at the built environment and its role. I mean, you you don't even have to look further than Amish people. Like they they just, they don't get any, they don't get allergies. (laughs) There's 
so much evidence suggests that the way that we have built our environments around us, the way we have cleaned ourselves, overcleaned. I mean, and, and it's all very nuanced. Look, I mean, when, when surgeons started washing their hands, people started not dying in surgery, right? So it's like there's there's absolutely like a balance and it's not like an all or none for sure. I, you know, I have a lot of parents that always say to me, like, my kid is so screwed from COVID because he's been using so much hand sanitizer. And I was like, did your child get COVID? <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, it's you know, it, it, it and then also like, your hand microbiome is probably less uh, impacted than your immune system from like long COVID as a child who may have been susceptible to that, right? And so it's it's also it's so it's so nuanced. But for them, but you are absolutely right that like between our and, and by the way, our soil isn't what our soil used to be either. So the exposure to it is different than the exposure used to be to it. And a lot of people are working on how do you enrich and make the microbiome of the soil thrive again because. Just like we've done to ourselves with antibiotics, we've done the same thing with pesticides and other chemicals and the way that we breed seeds and the way that we crop ro don't crop rotate and all the things that used to happen very naturally and the way we used to burn fire and burn forests and you know all these things that were very intuitive, either naturally evolved or you know certainly existed in practices where we weren't at this level of industrialization, like absolutely has hugely impacted our, our immune systems, our microbiomes, et cetera, which is I'm not the person that takes plucks things out of history to say it's always better, but but certainly we have a lot. We, there's a lot of learnings of how we need to like really more circularly think about things. Funny that you mentioned that because when I was sick and on my gut journey to heal my gut, I actually wanted to go home to Big Sur and start eating dirt because I'm like that's my biome. Like yeah. I am that biome. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Yeah. But I was like I was getting that desperate. Where it was like, well, maybe if I go home and eat my biome. Yeah, it'll help repopulate my biome that I've obviously screwed up from antibiotics and this and taking the Advil every time I was in pain, but not asking why I was in pain, right? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Also, and say, you know, and just another tidbit is that, you know, a lot of people just say, think about antibiotics in the gut microbiome, but everything from mouthwash mm -hmm. to NSAIDs, like the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, like Advil, as an example, antacids, mm -hmm. they are all they screw with your microbiome big time. And we pack those like candy, you know, and I don't mean that in some like, again, not in this like West East way, just in this like the the reactive way that we care for pain and things like that. Definitely, you know, you you, you can't just, it goes, goes back to what you were saying, which is just the this mindful consumption of thing, of anything is, is powerful. Because when you start to think that like just a Tums itself can really, could impact your microbes, you, you just start to, think about these things in just in very different ways. And, and I'm not saying, again, don't take antibiotics if you absolutely need them, but there's a, a less reflexive way and reactive way to think about some of those interventions that could actually maybe cultivate health in, in a much better way, more thoughtful way. A hundred percent. And honestly, I did my research on you and I understand that you were actually raised healthy and then you continued to be healthy in your life. And I was the opposite. I was raised healthy. And when I left home, I was looking at these people eating sugar because I wasn't raised on sugar and they were yeah. drinking. And I'm like, well, they look healthy, so I'm in. And yeah. just totally destroyed, you know, this incredible gift my parents had given me. I just yeah. was like, I joke that my book should have been called Snickers for Breakfast because I was <laughs> like a total sugar yeah. addict. And, yeah. you know, just the doctor, my parents raised me 
without any medical interventions. We were born at home and breastfed and then fed really well and played in the dirt and, you know, taking a shower was optional, you know, and, and then I left home and it was like the doctor, I was like, I don't feel good. Take an antibiotic. Okay. You know, I just told him. Although, I mean, one, one, one way to like salvage any guilt you have there is that, you know, part of what probably led you to have a very, a, a lot of resilience in doing some of those bad things is probably the healthy cultivation of what you, what your parents helped create early in, early in life too. Imagine that if that, if that was flipped, how much maybe more detrimental that those behaviors would have been at an earlier time in life, which, which is kind of interesting to think about too. Yeah. That it, oh, I mean, I mean, I definitely felt it when I had run my health into the ground and came up with a Crohn's diagnosis. That was the interesting moment that I actually reverted back to my upbringing where I was like, I need to course correct now because yeah. if I don't, I'm on these medications that are incredible and I'm glad they're there, but I don't want to be on them. Like yeah. I don't, you know, and yeah. so I really course corrected. And, and I think I saw you say somewhere in some of the, an interview I was reading that, you know, to consider the food you're eating of how does this feed my microbiome? It was something like that. And I was yeah. like, I thought that was really beautiful because we don't consider our microbiome. We consider what do I want to taste and what do I want to eat? And is it going to give me pleasure versus how is this actually feeding this incredible ecosystem that I'm cultivating with every, and, and that's the question I wanted to ask you, is it as malleable as every bite we take? And every person we kiss, like, do they, does that make big shifts yeah. in our microbiome? Well, it, it depends how susceptible you are to shifts. <laughs> if, if you think about it, it's kind of what I was saying, right? Like, like, um, like, for example, like if you have a really resilient and healthy gut microbiome and you kind of have like a few cheat days, right? It's going to probably impact you differently than the person who is just like consistently eating like really poorly, which is kind of just like intu intuitive, both from like a health perspective in general, but also from microbiome perspective. I mean, if you want to know how malleable the microbiome is, I mean, within three months of a like, like immigrants from China and East Asia will come to the United States with a very specific microbiome. And within three months, you cannot detect what their microbiome used to look like of eating a Western diet, fully Western diet. In terms of like how fast it changes, I mean, yeah, I mean, your microbiome is co constantly shifting. You know, your stool, a stool sample will, will look very different today than it does kind of three days from now. It is malleable in the sense that there are absolutely like particularly both negatively and, and particularly, but you know, again, like nuclear bombing with like a broad spectrum antibody, you don't need it into something that's already being treated poorly is going to have often a far more devastating effect than something that has a bit more resilience and the ability to bounce back because you're eating well so well. And, you know, it really, it's like that throwing sand in the rainforest, right? Like mm -hmm. it's just like a small little fire, <laughs> a small little fire that can be put out quickly is different than like torching the five trees that are there. Right. And so I think it's, and, 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 and I'm, I'm using generalizations. There's a lot of research being done on different We We have a study happening right now on post-antibiotic use and the microbiome. There's a lot of research being done. As I said, some, it may not, we may find that it may not have to do with density and diversity. It may have to do a lot more with function in the future. It's intuitive that if these things are blips on the radar versus just the general way you care for yourself, you know, you, you probably have a, a much higher chance of resili of resiliency, which, you know, a lot of people, again, when you think about um, health and really important framework changes, one of the things that I care a lot about is this notion that, and why, one of the reasons I love 
the world of microbiome is because it gives you like a ecological rationale for the idea that health isn't this like jerk, like this place you're one day going to get to, but that actually like every day, and you, you, I like that you said food is information every day, your body's working towards homeostasis in some ways and like really managing all the information that's coming in. And your microbes are a huge part of that, whether something's touching your skin, you're inhaling it, what to do with it, what to do with the food information, what to do with the air, what to do with all of these, who's around you, what microbes they're bringing around. I mean, all, all of these things, you know, your body's constantly just trying to figure out how to make sense of. And if that's, if that's a well-tuned sensing system, which is kind of what I was saying about early, early childhood development, which is where, you know, when it's not well-tuned, that's where autoimmune conditions come from, it's where allergies come from, because it's, it was somehow trained to believe that like an antigen from, you know, peanut is bad for you, right? And so when, when it is well attuned, it's not really like you can't, I think that very similar in, in with women, especially it sounds like, which is a big part of your practice. You know, I, I think like wellness is almost like the new Photoshop, right? Like it's just another thing to be shamed by because you hadn't like reached this like place that this person on Instagram has somehow like deluded you into thinking they're at. Whereas like you have to realize that every single day is a processing of new information that just because you get sick doesn't mean you're not healthy. Really what the measure of health to me is, is resiliency. Yes. And and what, what do you do in the face of stressors and that information that can be impactful? And how fast can you come back to a place of, you know, homeostasis? And I think well, there's a lot of things in life in our world in which people thought that way more, but particularly with health, because the expectation that you'll just never get sick is not, is not real. The expectation that you'll never have a meal that doesn't agree with you is not real. The expectation that you'll never eat a piece of birthday cake is probably for most people not real. And I think actually when you look at microbiome and stress studies, the shame and stress of it probably is more hurtful to your microbiome than just fucking eating the birthday cake. <laughs> so, so like, it's, you know, it, it, it is, I think the notion of resiliency, which is what in biology they talk mostly about as a, as a marker of health, mm-hmm. uh, is probably like the new language that I would love people to maybe start embracing more. I was going to say that's actually a cornerstone that I work on with my clients because they're like, oh, when will I be, when will I be better? And I'm like, well, that's a continuous process betterment and 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 that homeostasis but resilience is what we're working for and the longer you take care of your body and cultivate the health within it the more resilient we can become and and it's beautiful to see i was not resilient before i got the diagnosis i was getting really sick i was pushing myself i was caught up in do i am i thin enough am i this enough and then i would you know, get into the diet culture and instead of just eating for health, like how do I eat for health and wellness versus worry about everything else and and allow that to be what's cultivating my health versus versus anything else. And it was interesting once I started eating for the health of my body and gut health and skin health, what I put on my skin. Actually, the biggest you you talked about oral health, which is such a huge part of health. Yes. And nobody knows how to take care of oral health. <laughs> Well, rightfully so. I mean, you know, in, in as in as good of a job as the processed food industry has done of marketing our way into our understanding and belief system of our body and diet, the oral care industry <laughs> has spent over a century of believing that the killing and eradication of all microbes in the mouth is the marker of health. And of course, microbes play 
a massive role in the health of your oral microbiome. They're involved in the formation of biofilms that can create, that can produce acids that break down the enamel. Most people don't know this, but dental caries, which are cavities, is the most common bacterial infection in the world because it's back, literally bacteria just like eating, you know, the acids that they produce eating, eating enamels. Of course, they play a role in periodontal disease, your, your gums, and then halitosis. So have the volatile compounds that they produce and metabolize. And so, and then of course there's other, you know, there, the, this is an interesting East-West like kind of pairing, which is that of course in like, you know, in, in, in China and TCM and Chinese medicine, you know, the first thing a Chinese medicine, medicine doctor does is look at your tongue, which is fascinating. And of course, now I think Western you know, medicine, or at least science, is certainly, uh, I don't want to say catching up because I, I you know, I, I think what the TCM community would intuit from the tongue is different than where the science is maybe heading. But certainly like the correlations now and the re very real, I mean, outside of just the things that are in your mouth, like periodontal disease and gum disease and all of that and the understanding of the oral microbiome there, the connections now and where the research is heading and understanding the development of those diseases correlates to the, the onset of neurodegeneration and neurodegenerative diseases and other diseases in the body and systemic issues as well is like, I mean, that research is coming online very quickly every day. And I think we're going to start to see the mouth as not just a re-understanding of, of care. So like not, not this like antimicrobial approach, but also not like charcoal either. Charcoal, <laughs> like, you know, I, there's a lot of, <laughs> I could tell you about how that hurts the enamel of the teeth too. So I don't think it's the, uh, it's just the, you know, coconut pulling necessarily coconut oil <laughs> and pulling, but Certainly, we're going to start to see like the care of the mouth be about both better mouth care and, and dental care, but also start to understand it as a portal and like a gateway to some of the things that, you know, it could either mitigate the onset of or improve the health of, which I think is fascinating and really interesting. We have, we're, we're about to announce our big oral microbiome partnership with probably the most prestigious, you know, oral microbiome researchers in the world, which we're really excited about. And, we have an interesting pipeline there that we're really proud of. And I'm, I cannot wait to, to launch probably in the next year. Because I was just about to ask you, what should we be using in our mouth? So what would you do for oral health for everybody listening? I have so many clients asking me, Unique, what do I brush my teeth with? What's not going to mess with my mouth biome, my gut biome? What would you suggest people do for oral? Well, for, first, I think, you know, of course, thinking a little bit about what we've been talking about, which is this more ecological approach, which is, you know, maybe the, the things that are like broadly antimicrobial, like a lot of the really stringent mouthwashes, mm -hmm. um, I would stay away from. There's actually crazy research from like a couple of years ago that came out that showed that mouthwash inhibited muscle recovery. <laughs> and it had all kinds of um, interesting implications for hypertension too. So like, I think there's some you, you start to see some correlations between what you're doing in the mouth antimicrobially and other parts of the, of mm. the body. It was a fascinating study. And then I think, you know, there, there's certainly some debate on, on toothpaste. And, and while I would like to say, I could say, just use this product and this product today, because I think the research, there's some really interesting research being done on like how you could take pro, like probiotics for the, for the mouth. I think the ones that are on the market today, and I think have maybe a bit more to go from a research perspective, but, and certainly the things that are saying probiotic toothpaste and, and things like that, I would like to see the da data on and understand more. But I think for the most part, I think things, of course, 
where there's low sugar, <laughs> low, I mean, I think a lot of the, especially ones for kids sometimes, or, you know, the ones that maybe taste the best, you just have to kind of watch out for like how it's being uh, sweetened. I would say the most important thing is, and I, know, I sound like very old school saying this, is really, is, is flossing. It's really one of the most important things you can do. Removing all of the food particles from your mouth means that you're removing the opportunity for the bad actors, the bad microbes, <laughs> or the ones that are really making, you know, using it as a substrate to make, you know, acids and things that break down your enamel. So really just remove the removal of food particles is really meaningful. I, well, I don't, I don't know. I have not looked into how much the research supports this, but I really, I think tongue scraping and, and just the removal of that biofilm. Um, is something that particularly if you, you know, have halitosis and suffer from some other area, other things, I think that, that are impacting your, your oral health or your experience of your oral health. Those are great to me, like easy, easy things that you can easily do with very little impact. And, and then I think starting, you know, we could, we could have a whole other episode about fluoride versus hydroxyapatite. <laughs> But I would make sure that from a remineralization perspective, you're using one of the, the main ingredient in your, in your toothpaste is one of, one of those. Although I know fluoride has a lot of controversy, but hydroxyapatite has some really interesting data on remineralization, even head to head with fluoride, and particularly for children. Also, if you're thinking about children's toothpaste, and I would mostly say to just be really mindful of more of the, like what not to do versus like what to do, especially since the science and the, some of the innovation in probiotics and where that's heading is not like a hundred percent there yet. Bacteria is interesting because, you know, the biofilms that form on your tongue um, and the ones that form, you know, on your teeth and in your mouth and different kind of the different niches, the little different microbe ecology is because the saliva has a different microbiome than the cheeks, than the tonsils, than the palate and the tongue, <laughs> which is fascinating. You know, each one of those, like, you know, like tongue scraping. And, and I think there are some areas where just like the mechanical removal, like things as boring as tongue scraping and, and you know, like interdental brushing uh, and flossing. And a lot of it, interdental brushing research has demonstrated that it can be more impactful than flossing, which is kind of interesting depending on the mechanism that's being used. And then I think there's, you know, there's interesting data there's a crazy study that came out a few years ago about mouthwash and its disruption of the oral microbiome and muscle exercise recovery so that was obviously a very early study but it was just it's just interesting because you know as the oral microbiome and the health of the oral microbiome gets increasingly connected beyond just correlation or mechanistically connected to other systems and organ systems you know functions of the body I think you're going to find that the disruption of that microbiome, not just for care, things like obvious things like periodontal disease or the, you know, um, enam enamel degradation or the disruption or, or like cavity or dental carry formation, but actually we'll start to understand, which we already have started to understand its role in neurodegenerative disease and how just like over ongoing kind of perturbation of that microbiome and or just dysbiosis for, you know, is, is, is potentially like accelerating certain neurodegeneration. And so I think that, you know, as the research comes online, we'll understand the importance of some of these things more and more. Obviously in our world, we're looking at like specific microbes and what kinds of toothpaste, what kinds of products could be least perturbing to the microbiome, but also most health promoting. And I think the, you know, and then I think the second thing would be what microbes could you introduce into that environment that would inhibit the ability for pathogens to take hold, but also uh, help with things like acid 
depending on what what mechanism they work on, looking at ways that they could reduce the production, for example, of like certain lactic acids that then, of course, are part of what the byproducts of which are part of what eats away the enamel to create things like cavities, which most people don't know are actually like the great most common bacterial infection in the world and are caused by bacteria. So, you know, and, and then I think the last piece is just that making sure that there isn't this like rose colored goggles on in your natural health food store with the assumption that just because it's natural, it must be good. I think anyone who deifies like a lot of the more natural world and certainly it has a lot to offer us and has even offered modern medicine knows that like there's a lot of these compounds, like everything from oregano oil to some of them with, you know, colloidal silvers and other compounds are incredibly antimicrobial. So if you think that there's a difference, if you think that like there, it's kind of like the coconut sugar versus sugar <laughs> story right. uh, or all the narratives around glycemic index and all of these things. And certainly there, there's some benefits environmentally and other things. I mean, there's, there's, there's pros and cons to all, but at the end of the day, there's no like little gatekeeper inside your body saying, oh, this glucose must've come from a much better source because it's much nicer when it comes into your body. <laughs> so, and honestly, we know glucose response also highly personalized too. So, you know, I think, I think mostly like the things that I see, like, for example, I was talking to someone the other day, I have not read this research, but who was telling me about like char- a lot of the charcoal toothpaste, for example, and actually how degrading charcoal can be to the enamel of the teeth. And so just because something sounds like a cool but wellness trend <laughs> or it's quote unquote natural, doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be a very stringent antimicrobial that is non-discriminating for good and bad bacteria, which couldn't, which may not be good and cause dysbiosis in the mouth or things that are just not necessarily positive, but sound good. <laughs> Is one thing, and then I would, and then I'd say like the third, and you know the third, the third bucket is a little bit more the fluoride versus non-fluoride, and and certainly a lot of the the research that's coming out now that's that I think has a long way to go around neurotoxins and other stuff. But I think there are other compounds like hydroxyapatite that can be incredibly important. And what I do see is that particularly in parents and children is that like they're just choosing like basically all natural toothpaste that are surfactants that have not been studied necessarily for the microbiome, but then they're choosing and opting out of like any kind of mineralization, which I think at least hydroxyapatate, I would really highly advocate for. And then I think fluoride is a bit more of a personal decision at this point. Yeah, I do. I mean, you just touched on so many things there that I want to jump on because there is this idea that if something is natural, it is inherently good. And that what I keep trying to remind people is that it may be but in the hands of a professional, because yeah. <laughs> you can wipe out, you know, taking a lot of um, oregano oil or colloidal silver. I've seen people with damage done from it, like really damage. So it is incredibly powerful. The fluoride conversation is definitely a heated one right now because I have I have friends, personal friends, who they're like, well, as soon as I take them off fluoride, they get cavities. But fluoride potentially is a neurotoxin. So it's like, where do you find this balance to protect your teeth so that you don't have cavities all the time? And it's also, right, not everybody has the same oral microbiome. Some people get cavities no matter how much they brush brush and floss. Well, if your child's eating candy all the time, (laughs) you're not flossing and you're not doing any of the mechanistic removal of some of this stuff. It's also challenging. For sure. But I think the world microbiome is we're, we're going to announce a partnership in the coming weeks. We're really excited about with like some of the most premium, you know, premier and, and kind of leading breakthrough oral microbiome research in the world. And, and that 
we're very excited to kind of think about how we tell that story because, of course, that's a perfect example of where for over a century, we've basically told the antimicrobial story pretty stringently, no, no pun intended, for, for over 100 years and really got it wrong, you know, which is really interesting. And so I think it's going to be, you know, between that and, and some of the knowledge of and some of the micro, the, the probiotics that, that will be developed as a result of where this field is heading. I can't vouch much for the probiotic and prebiotic toothpaste that's being marketed currently, but I will say that the field is really promising. How do you choose in your daily symbiotic, how do you choose what strains to put in there? Like, I'm really fascinated um, by that. Well, in our strain, I mean, our, our daily symbiotic was one product designed for one thing. Like anything we do in oral microbiome or whatever, we'll have totally different okay. applications, be totally different products. I mean, that that product was, so we screened, I think we, we, we did screening uh, on over 150 strains. We narrowed it down to 24, eight of which are proprietary to us, many of which come out of our partnership with Harvard and Gary Rifkin's lab and were chosen for very specific metabolic and functional activity. Others were chosen because they were very well characterized for very specific outcomes like in digestive health, GI health. And then really, really interesting, like new novel areas, like the gut, the gut liver access for the prevention of reuptake of like circulating cholesterol, its impact on like LDL as well. And then obviously dermatological health. So strains that were studied on the gut skin axis to dampen certain inflammatory responses. And then we've generated a tremendous amount of data on the whole composition. I think three tr clinical trials right now, one for IBS at Harvard with Dr. Anthony Lembo, which interestingly just for you as a practitioner, one of the things that's really fascinating about that trial is that it can't, actually we had no intention of studying IBS. And actually just out of all of, out after launching DSO-1 and the amount of anecdotal feedback that we have gotten from people with IBS, IBD, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, for which we can make no claims, you know, we, we really got curious to understand if we could figure out like mechanistically what was happening between this composition the delivery system that we developed that we know kind of has this like small intestine release um, and is able to deliver the viability in full dose, you know, at the at the place where we think it will have the most impact on the GI tract. Um, and then, of course, the strain rationale, the composition itself and why it's having such an impact. And so that's a really interesting one where like that actually just came from like the the most like U.S. we listened. And so that that study will be done soon. And we're really excited. I mean, it's been blinded. So we, we it's randomized control, placebo control trial. Perfect. Um, with one of the most, honestly, premier like neuro, I think he, I think it's called neurogastroenterologists, I believe, at Harvard. And he is, Dr. Lembo is known as one of the most, you know, kind of preeminent IBS researchers. So we're very excited to see that data. And then the other two are really interesting. The other two trials are for antibiotic recovery, hmm. looking at the rescue effect of a consortia arc our consortia that's present in DSO-1 after broad spectrum antibiotics regimen. And then the third, which is really interesting, is looking at post-alcohol recovery. So a lot of people don't know that, you know, alcohol is one of the main perturbations of the microbiome. It causes permeability of the gut, has impact on the human cell wall as well as the microbiome population and so our ecosystem. Our initial in vitro data was done on Grey Goose vodka. Wow. <laughs> and it was crazy what we saw just like looking at like what actually even just two shots of bacon spot could do to your gut which is crazy if you think about it given um the prevalence of drinking in our country uh, around the world so so those are really exciting those are really exciting trials and then as i mentioned like any of the other products i'll mention or or areas of research i'll mention really are their own standalone 
I mean, these studies sound incredible. They've yeah, really incredible. Because I can, I mean, one of the things I do is is when people are working on their gut biome and healing is I have them go off a lot of stuff. I have them go off alcohol, especially just for hormonal reasons, gut reasons. But to hear that you're actually researching how gut affects the the biome and the gut biome and and really what probiotics, the role pro- probiotics can play in that recovery is really exciting. I mean, I've gotten really beautiful feedback on your product from my clients, both oh. const- constipated who are getting relief from constipation, which is a big one. I, I joke that I've never met an angrier woman than a constipated woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, yeah, it's not, or maybe a pregnant Yes. Yeah, I mean, constipation is one of, I mean, constipation is a disease claim, so we can't, we we cannot say that, but I will say that we have strains that were studied specifically, I think we talked about this at the end of our last, uh, maybe last we were talking about a little bit more about gut brain stuff, but like the, we have strains that were specifically studied that trigger and are, play a role in the neurotransmitters that control motility. So we know mechanistically that those strains were studied for that. We just, constipation is a very specific disease claim that works off the Roman fork criteria, uh, which a lot of clinicians don't agree with because they think it should be less stringent. You know, I think it's less, less, I think it's less than three bowel movements per week or whatever. But um, I think a lot of clinicians believe that actually even less than four or five could be, could be indicative of of constipation. So, but yes, but we, and we definitely have the ability to articulate from the research things like the increase of bowel frequency, but we also anecdotally hear the people who have been clinically diagnosed as constipated, you know, experience those, those benefits, which obviously hopefully help is helpful too. Extremely helpful. So is there a diet that you would say <laughs> helps feed the microbiome the most or foods that help feed the gut biome? Really what we're talking about? Food is a, is a fascinating topic when it comes to, well, really when it comes to nutrition, when it really comes to anything. I would say that, you know, one of the things that I think has been, well, there's a few things with diet. On a really high level, I think that we know that more than probably any other lever that we have, our product included. And really any product, any medication, product capsules, supplements, et cetera. Diet is one of the greatest levers. And obviously you can say this for other areas of health, but I'll just stay in my lane of microbiome, which is it really is the most critical lever that one could could pull as it relates to the health of the microbiome. And you can see like studies where, I mean, immigrants to the United States from Southeast Asia within three to four weeks of being in the United States, their microbiome will completely change. From eating a sad diet or are these, or are these eating, just eating an entirely different and new diet? I mean, yes, I, yes, of course I, I could extrapolate that it's from probably not the, the, it's probably more of a Western typical diet of mass America and that probably doesn't have good, but, but just, just the notion, if you think about that, I think someone who's had a grown adult for most of their life, had a steady state microbiome from a country in Southeast Asia comes to the United States and within three to four weeks, you can already see just from a major cultural dietary change impact to the microbiome. So one of the things that that is, I think really, and I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is that what I could speak about today are what I think are the, the, like, let's call it the lowest common denominator 
of where I think a lot of the research has started and things that we generally know to be true. However, it's also important to caveat that like where the science is heading is that there, and, and I, I really, I say these words with like a lot of caution because I think there's a obsession with personalization that actually like could not serve us in the future when you need things that work across a broad population to be able to impact human health at scale. Because the truth is, is that while we in LA can sit around and talk about getting our blood done and like other things, it's like the truth is at scale in public health, personalization is not going to be the, the end all be all. And it may not even be the scientifically like sound end all be all. Customization maybe, or it's like target indication specific. But I only say all this to say that I think there's a lot of really clear dietary recommendations today that we know from microbiome research is really important. I think the first is the diversity of plant fibers uh, and polyphenols. So, and compounds called polyphenols. So there's this really interesting relationship between like example, polyphenols in your gut microbiome. So like your microbes will metabolize these polyphenols as, as it just to use one compound as an example to increase their bioavailability and then benefit the gut composition and function, for example. And those are coming, you know, and, and that's coming from, you know, everything from like, obviously the plant fibers are coming from every, all kinds of different plants. Uh, polyphenols are present in great, in things like walnuts and pomegranate, dark, really dark, but another, other compounds, uh, other foods. But I think the, the, the presence of plants and fiber <laughs> and what really importantly, just because I know, and particularly with nutrient sure a lot of your clients, people get into habits where they eat the same thing all the time. And so what you find now, granted, yeah, I mean, everybody, <laughs> of course, everybody does that. Now, you have to remember, eating a lot of vegetables all the time, even if it's the same, is better than eating a big bath every day. So it's like, you have to look at this all in kind of context. But really interesting research like Rod Knight and the American Gut Project came out, which is right in our backyard in you know, UCSD. What their big findings were was really fascinating, which was, and again, I'm saying this generally because, you know, and someone, again, who's really constipated, the answer may not be plant fiber. And they're finding out that actually more fiber is not the answer. So... I say this just broadly that the findings from the American Gut Project, which were really fascinating, were diversity of plants equals diversity in the microbiome. So they found that eating 30 different plant types every week increased, like, had a, had a significant increase in the diversity of the microbiome, which is really interesting. And obviously, you could imagine makes a tremendous amount of sense, particularly when you're eating more seasonally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I don't think you have to like go, go, cra- go crazy, but and I'm sure it does mean that you can't like repeat anything. It just means that when you're thinking about some of the habits you have of the people who really are in more like the optimization world, not just trying to like figure out how to eat a carrot every day because they eat so many things that are not plants. But when you're really in optimization of, of that, I think it's, ex- it's interesting to think about that, like that diversity um, actually will uh, potentially end up serving you from a uh, diversity perspective from your microbiome. And then I think the, you know, I think the other kind of really interesting, you know, in addition to kind of the just plant fibers and looking at polyphenols are microbiota, what they would call microbiota accessible carbohydrates. So things like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, beans, sweet potatoes, these are the dietary fibers that are, you know, carbs that are like linked. They're just like simple sugars that are linked, but because of the variation in like their chemical composition, solubility and size, it makes them 
really interesting, again, from a diversity perspective to fit into like a, a different kind of niches, functions and benefits that your microbes can use kind of for and utilize for different. And I think that's like really interesting. And I think a lot, like a lot of people have like carb fear, but you also need to remember that microbes need different types of these carbohydrates. And of course you can, you know, like a lot of people don't want to overdo it on sweet potatoes, but I think you can kind of, you could overdo it on broccoli if you really wanted to, <laughs> you know? And so I think, I think that that it's, it's not just the plants, but I think also the diversity of plants is really important when you start to understand how your microbes, how you, how you realize it's not for you. And you realize that your microbes are, are they need to use these things. They're not even digestible by your human body parts. Right. They have to get all the way to the, to the small intestine, of the colon, so that your, your microbes can take them and then make really important things from them. Or in some cases, they are being used to kind of bulk stool and other things like that. And of course, a lot of the things you hear about fiber, but I think what people forget is that actually they are the substrate. They are the food source for your microbes and or the source by which or the compound by which your microbes need to use them to make other things or metabolize them into things like short chain fatty acids that are like super important for your body. And for functioning. And then I think there's the intake, the, la the last couple of buckets would just be the intake of omega-3, so N3 fatty acids. So this is where, you know, you get a little bit into the plant-based versus pescatarian. <laughs> like, it, you know, it depends on people who are comfortable with salmon or sardines or some of the more rich, you know, omega-3 foods. But of course, avocados and olive oil, there's other, of course, there are other um, sources. And, you know, these are the, these are the lipids and that obviously are not just an energy reserve, but they're very, very important for like various bodily functions. And honestly, omega, and particularly for women's health, like, and particularly during pregnancy, the research is, oh, I mean, I think omega-3s are like, I think a lot of people know that they're important, but I don't think people like actually understand <laughs> how important they are. And more importantly, and I'm sure you talk about this with your clients, like, and you look at the biggest problems that are facing are, are the Western world at scale, like cardiovascular disease. And what's really the problem is not just the lack of omega-3s, but it's the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6s and the how, how much consumption has happened of omega-6s, which is, of course, coming from fast food, processed food, et cetera, and all these veg processed vegetable oils. And that is really like the one of the biggest challenges because there's really no very, very little omega-3 to none in the American diet. Well, because I think people go, oh, I don't like fish, or I, there's a lot of people who don't like yeah. fish, don't like the taste of fish, will not yeah. eat a sardine. You know? So it's then they're like, okay, well, then how do I get it? And then the research is saying that a lot of the omega capsules are rancid, and so people are yeah. scared to take the capsules. So they shouldn't eat it. A lot of them are disgusting. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what's yeah. your favorite way to get them? Yeah, or they're oxidized, which uh, is even worse, which can be pro-inflammatory. Right. Um, which is really fa fascinating. And, you know, they're all, a lot of them are sold in clear bottles, which I can't wrap my head around. No, dark. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a number of, uh, a number of things that make the consumption of omega-3s, you know, and particularly when you get into food scarcity, food equity, et cetera, uh, between access to plants and fresh vegetables and fruits, plus the lack of access to omega-3, not everybody also can afford, I mean, depending on olive oil is not the cheapest of all of the cooking oils and there's a lot of hurdles there to make that a staple for sure. And then I think, you know, look, a lot of the other ones are, it's, I always say it's like, I, I wish I sometimes had like catchy acronyms for everything. And, you know, because if you dress things up, I think people, it's easier to have adoption. At the end of the day, the, my biggest 
you know, the, the biggest outside of what I just described, you know, are really thinking about like low sugar, low preservatives, low processed foods, low food additives. And the truth is, is that you can start to think about it, at least through the perspective of, is that good for my mic? Is that good for my microbes? Like, will they be able to do anything with this? The answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and could could it hurt their function? Could it hurt their function and their ability to keep me healthy by me making this choice? Which you know, I always tell men is like the closest they'll ever feel to feel the, the, the closest they'll ever feel to being pregnant is like thinking about their microbiome as this like entity inside of them that they have to like nurture and care for that doesn't weigh quite as much as a full grown infant, but weighs enough to be in early stages of pregnancy <laughs> analogy. And I always say that because it's like a real, it's, it's, it's a really nice way to like construct to think about it because, you know, what goes in absolutely impacts what goes out for sure, uh, which is a huge marker of our health and how all of this relates to poop and <laughs> GI health and everything. Uh, and of course, how you feel and, and many other things. But for the most part, I mean, those are really like the really big, the big groupings that we talk about a lot. There's obviously nuance to certain things, but, you know, even the sugar, even the sugar substitutes, aspartame and sucralose have been studied the most, are very damaging to the microbiome. But now they're starting to look at some of the more na quote unquote natural alternatives and that research is underway. Mostly at the Weissman Institute looking at actually how some of even those other sugar, sugar substitutes that we're very happy to sprinkle and put into everything because we think it's quote unquote natural, how actually they may not be that beneficial either. Yeah, I, I do say this a lot. Nothing is for free. You just have to decide, you know, if what you're taking on is what you actually intend it to do. Because when you when you get something that tastes sweet, but it doesn't deliver on it, that's going to create its own set of issues, right? Yes. It, the body's still responding to taste uh, of sweet. And so, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I guess I have one last question. For you. What's your favorite way to get your omega-3s? Well, we eat a lot of sardines in my household. My, my Sally introduced them early. So I think for whatever reason, I've been able to get away with it for a long time. I use allergy-based uh, supplementation at the moment. So as well as, as well as just like egregious amounts of olive oil. I love <laughs> olive oil. Yeah. Uh, and avocados. And, and, I'm, and those are probably like my primary sources today. And I do my blood work a lot, honestly. Yeah ratios and making sure I understand. And, and, but, but I definitely, at least through pregnancy, I've had to really rely on the supplementation as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. I know so Thanks many so people who are going to be so excited to get this education uh, and excited. to understand that every time we eat, we are feeding our microbiome. We are making a bid for our health, for our resilience. I think that's something we've chatted about is the resilience of our body and how having this healthy microbiome really contributes to our resilience in every way possible. So very much so. Yeah. And I mean, look, the choices we make, I think we know this in the last couple of years, like they affect us, they affect our communities, they affect our children, they affect our impact our planet it's 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 not about just us too which i think is a beautiful thing that the microbiome also shows us too yeah for sure it's also how intentional we want to be about health i think there were a lot a lot a lot of time that went by that people were just eating and thinking health was a byproduct of like oh i just i get healthier i get sick but really it's what goes in is is what really writes that story so a hundred percent i agree with you and the microbiome is a perfect uh, mirror for that story. 
Oh my goodness. Yes, a hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. It.